of you good workers, good news to you I'll tell Of how the good old union has come in here to dwell Which side are you on? Oh, which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? My daddy was a miner, now he's an heir and son And I'll stick with the union till every battle's won which side are you on? Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Oh, which side are you on? They say in Harlan County there are no neutrals there. You're either with the Union or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on? Oh, which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Workers, can you stand it? Oh, tell me how you can. Will you be a lousy scab or will you join us hand in hand? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Oh, which side are you on? Don't scab for the bosses. Don't listen to their lies. Us workers haven't got a chance unless we organize. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Oh, which side are you on? Alright, what are we doing today? Uh, today we're doing a communist movie night. Hell yeah. And we watched the 1976 documentary Harlan County, USA. Uh, this was directed by Barbara Koppel. Um, so this was made in like the 70s, right? Like 74? Yeah, 76. 76. The premise of the movie is it's documenting a strike in Harlan County, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. At the Brookside Mine. Yes. Workers there voted to join the United Mine Workers of America, the UMWA. Mm-hmm. And Duke Power Company and its subsidiary Eastover Mining Company, they refused a contract, so the miners went on strike. Yes, so it documents that strike and kind of the aftermath of it and mm -hmm. throughout just really shows the need for unions and like the conditions they're working in. It's pretty crazy. It's real interesting in terms of its focus there. It's kind of focusing on kind of what unionization looks like on the ground. I guess what we're looking at more broadly than that is not just what does the what what do unions, you know, fight for in, in the immediate wages conditions stuff like that for the workers but also like what is the potential for unions in terms of like their revolutionary potential yeah and i think for me one of the big points that i took away from it was the solidarity and like the mm -hmm. local emphasis on just the community itself like you end up yeah. seeing the same characters over and over and you're just i mean they're not characters they're people but yes you just start recognizing them and you're just like, damn, this person's like really involved. And it's really interesting mm -hmm. to see how that plays out within like, I mean, I'm assuming this community is pretty small. Yeah. Yeah. And they're realizing kind of together that while they may just be one person that when they're banding together like that, they can really do things. And we'll talk about some of the moments that we see that super clearly uh, in the documentary. And I guess one of the things that will also kind of be contrasting with that is how the union itself while it kind of helps be this vehicle for solidarity also kind of sometimes gets in the way of that or like tamps down on it too. 
yeah, it wasn't just like the union is perfect. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll, we'll kind of offer our analysis of that from the left. All right. Let's get into it. All right. From the top, I want to talk about something. Uh, they start out and they keep going with a great musical selection. <laughs> yeah. I thought you'd be super into this. <laughs> For real. It was uh, some wonderful folk music, kind of uh, mountain music or old time music. Great stuff. I, I don't know. I dig it. I dig, you know, super old, <laughs> just weird old stuff, I guess, for most people. So Hazel Dickens did a lot of it. They were in there repeatedly. The opening song, I think, is Merle Travis. Mm, okay. Uh, down in the dungeon. And they take you immediately. The first scenes are, this is what it looks like kind of from the coal miner's perspective, dropping into these mines. I mean, you like, it was crazy. There's like no headroom, you know, they're like laying down on those. Yeah, they're like going in on basically a, a lo-fi conveyor belt and just laying uh-huh. down to go into work. And yeah, I I do not, <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah. That would, uh, that's not for me, man. Definitely so cramped not. Up in there. <laughs> that yeah. would suck. It kind of reminded me of, uh, of Snowpiercer where the kid is in the train innards, like all cramped mm, up, you know? Yeah. And they're just like also cramped far down and. And crouched all the time, and it looked hard. <laughs> Would not want to do. No, definitely. And, like, one of the first anecdotes we get is from an older man who tells a story of his boss tells him to be careful with the mule mm-hmm. and to make sure, like, nothing falls on it. And the guy's like, what about me? And he's like, I have to buy another mule. I can always hire somebody else. Yep. And for me, that brought me right back to open veins because I think they had a very similar mm-hmm. story about like mules were worth more than like native slaves. Yep. And that's the contradiction between capital and labor. Uh, the, the mule is capital. You know, it's it's something you use to make money with. And sometimes you the phrase human capital, maybe. But we're labor, you know, and you can always find someone else to rent out for a while. That's something that really struck me about the horrible conditions these miners were facing, and I imagine yeah. still face. And they have mm-hmm. a guy who talks about 300 pounds of steel fell on his head, and his work called him the next day and asked yeah. if he would come in. Yeah, he was out of work one day, maybe, I guess that day that he was injured. Yeah. And um, it wasn't like, hey, we hope you're okay. Are you all right to come back to work? I mean, right. the reason for that was... We don't want to pay for your shit. We want you making money for us, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just immediately get back to it. That was crazy. Yeah. To me, the question arose here right off from the get-go. When you're watching everyone down in the mines, when you're talking to the old man who was singing the songs and everything mm-hmm. and, and talking about how hard work was, uh, to me, it stuck out like, why are humans doing this? Mm-hmm. Okay, on one level... You can say, well, it's needed. And and especially back then, okay, we, we needed some fuel, I guess. And, and we didn't have as many energy alternatives or what, what have you. But in that case, if they were doing this kind of like basically heroic national work, right, then you would expect them to be, you know, very well respected in a, in a rational society and, <laughs> and like compensated and, and every measure taken to be sure that they're as safe as possible for doing this very needed thing. Yeah, I mean, if you put it no. in, like, children's terms, like, if you're going on a dangerous mission, you are a hero, you know? Like, yeah. these people should be, like, fucking D&D adventurers with armor and shit. 
Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, esteemed and celebrated when they go into any town and, you know, really taken care of and they're not. They're like a second class mm-hmm. citizen here throughout and we'll keep we'll keep seeing that. And it brings to mind, I guess, in the modern context, I mean, because this stuff still goes on, not necess- not as much in like our coal mines in America. Uh, most of those are open top mines now. They're very, they have very few underground mines. So yeah. those, they still exist. But what we sometimes don't think as much about, I guess, is the global south or like the non-imperial yeah. core countries, you know. This sort of stuff, whether it's textile sweatshops or rare earth mine for cell phone components, mm. like people are still fucking getting their bodies devoured by this capitalist machine. I mean, that's interesting. I thought about it in the opposite way. Like I said, I immediately thought of open veins. Mm -hmm. And I also thought of like, this has been going on, coal specifically, since the Industrial Revolution. And it looks like we haven't found any fucking better way to do it. Like, (laughs) it's just, you. if you think about the lifetimes of bodies that have been just Mm -hmm. either directly or indirectly killed from resource extraction it's it's staggering yeah and i mean i guess i will admit that like technology has somewhat improved our extraction methods but then you also i mean you got to look at it from an eco-socialist standpoint too like that mountaintop removal to get the coal is horrible in terms of pollutants and in terms of just just straight up destroying an ecosystem and everything yeah yeah there's not a good way to do this stuff and I don't know, I guess if you, and then if you want to shift back to the human toll and you think why, you know, why would people subject themselves to doing these horrible, uh, jobs in other parts of the world today, even mm-hmm. they don't have a choice. And there's a reason that the, you know, the imperialist countries like want to make sure they don't do any development or they don't, you know, unionize or they don't whatever, cause they need there to be no alternative besides starving. Yeah. To make people like go work in these places. Yeah. And that's how you get like monocultures. That's how you get. And this movie does a great example of that where like the whole town is mining. And if you want to do something else, you either have to get one of the like five other jobs or leave. Yeah. You have to be sort of a member of the local elite in that way. Like petty bourgeois. Mm-hmm. Sort of, you know. It's like, okay, you can run the one store here or you mm-hmm. can leave. Yeah. And you, you know, they interviewed people. Who were, who were saying, you know, oh, we're going to have to go up to wherever. We're going to have to go out to some other union state so we can work. Mm-hmm. Let's get into the conflict. So there's the strike, right? Yes. And the people are trying to organize people to go out and picket, to go out and block scab workers from coming in. Yeah. And reminder for listeners, scabs are people who come in to work while there's a strike going on, often brought in from outside, I imagine. Uh, or from the community. I mean, some of these people it seemed like, I, it both. Looked like they lived in the county. Yeah. You know, the, the the reason, again, this was going on is because the company was refusing the contract. They had the interview with Carl Horn, uh, mm-hmm. his bitch ass, who was the uh, president of Duke Power. And he was like, oh, we made them all these offers and they refused them. <laughs> it's not our fault. And it's like, dude, your offers were probably like, fuck your union, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the offers were not good. And he's just like, oh, it's not, it's not my fault. So we have to keep them out. So yeah, they bring in these strike bakers who are these real like anti-communist guys, these scabs. Yeah, definitely. They do some interviews with them and they mm-hmm. all like, it was kind of uncanny, bring up those anti-union sentiments like, like a script. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, they're saying, well, you know, that thing in the store is going to be more expensive because the price mm-hmm. is going mm-hmm. up. And I'm just like, I mean, it doesn't have to be. Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> whose fault is that? Mm-hmm. They're communists. They're mm-hmm. destroying the country. Mm-hmm. Someone said the union is what's running the United States. And I was just like, I if say, only. I mean, I geez. wish, dude. I fucking <laughs> wish. <laughs> this is kind of just before. It's interesting because it's just before like the complete, you know, two fist throttling of the union <laughs> movement. Demolition. Yeah. By like Reagan. And we had already kind of started with neoliberalism here, but that's like the complete death knell apocalypse mm-hmm. of it. When Reagan enters in. And just, I mean, murders the union movement. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the thing. I think in today's context, especially, you don't have a lot of people that understand. And I think they did a really good job of showing it in this documentary that it's a continuous struggle and it's a continuous fight. And that, like, the reason we have things like the fucking eight hour work week is because of unions. And, like, yes. you just have to keep going. And it just seems like. If we don't memorialize that or if we don't remind people of that, like we it's very easy to villainize, I guess, unions. I mean, not for me, but I guess for other people it is. (laughs) Well, yeah, you take for granted that, oh, the companies are nice enough to give us these things. Why are we agitating for more and making things more expensive? Basically, is what those guys were saying. Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Not realizing that the company was not nice enough to give you those things. It was forced to. No, yeah. They will not give you anything unless they have to. Like, yeah. there's no such thing as a free lunch for them. Think about this. Uh, you're, there was the interview with the old man, very old, and he was talking about when he was working at 10 years old. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was crazy. He said, you know, I was working 10 years old, six cents an hour. He was a breaker boy. And what that means was he was, they were all perched over conveyor belts of coal and slate and he had to pick out the slate from the coal as it went by yeah and if he didn't the guy the overseer guy would just go beat them yeah it looked horrifying yeah it was yeah it was just like it was hell uh and they were just sitting there in it uh and so they they eventually went on strike and he talks about kind of this like the resistance they they met from their union comes out there and says hey like come on we got a contract right Mm -hmm. the politicians come out and they say well come on like we're gonna do a law we're gonna compromise and then they get like their pastors and stuff like yeah the parish priest comes out and is on their side too it reminded me of the the classic like the pyramid of capitalism Mm -hmm. thing i thought the same thing like this is just the superstructure fucking running things they all support each other to get what they want Mm hmm. Yeah. And he's like, you know, okay, the company raised our pay. You know, I learned that they're all on the same side against me. Mm hmm. Uh, but I don't know, to me, it reminds me of what you're saying. Like, it could and was a lot worse before unions were fighting for better conditions. And we think, oh, what do we need them for anymore? That's old. Mm hmm. You know? mm-hmm. But I think that's the thing is there is a concerted effort to hide those conditions like sweatshops, like the service industry mm-hmm. even. And now we're seeing kind of how that's being shaken out in the United States. Yeah. People just straight refusing to take those jobs because they're fucking brutal. Yeah. They're terrible to set up, I guess more of the conflict, right? On mm-hmm. the one hand, the company is bringing in scabs. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the people 
the union organizers are trying to get people out for the pickets. And I thought this was interesting because they had that truck with the loudspeaker and he's yeah. driving around. <laughs> I mean, he's, you know, talking to the people, kind of spreading some good propaganda. Yep. It's interesting to me because this is not some uh, staffer from some neoliberal Democratic senator's office or something, right, from mm-hmm. Washington. It's not somebody coming in on a unionization drive from New York or California or somewhere. It's somebody from right there. Yeah. You know, somebody from the people in the community rather than preaching to it, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was all we, not like, you need to do this. It was like, all right, like, are you going to be there? I'm going to be there. Like, that was very much the language throughout, like, their organizing was like, I, there's this one lady. She was my uh, favorite. You're talking about, probably, you're talking about Lois Scott. Oh, my God. I loved Lois. <laughs> she was amazing. Like, she was signing people up to be on the picket line. She was just like, you can't do this from bed. You better fucking be yeah. there. Just like, it's straight like, up. I know you were in bed. Yeah. <laughs> she was calling people out and, and getting people to commit, saying like, hey, well, I see you there. Like, you mm-hmm. know, and that's, you know, what she, what she got to do. Uh, and she was doing this with the striking workers themselves and with the miners wives, which I thought was an interesting, like uh, a central really part of the story here. So, yeah. So they have these pickets and there's men involved for sure. But I would say like, if not half, probably maybe 60, 70% of the people that were shot, at least in the documentary were women. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was really interesting. Like they, they talk about like, you know, the reasons for doing that because their, you know, husbands are working in these dangerous conditions. They also want them to have good pension and good pay and all these things. And they're very much like, this is my fight too. Like I'm fighting for our kids. And like, you know, if yes. I have a son and they're going to work in the mines, like we got to do this. At one point, it's, this is kind of later on in the documentary. One of the men is just like, man, these women are out there and we're like fucking hiding behind the women. Like we should probably <laughs> show up and do something. And I'm like, mm, yeah. You're, yeah, you're right. Like they've been fucking kicking ass. <laughs> Yeah, and essentially, you know, of course, in the in the time, maybe it was kind of a patriarchal sort of shame mechanism working. But like, take gender out of it. Like these people, people are showing up to support us, but they're doing more than we are, and we're the actual like mm-hmm. workers here. You know, because um, I imagine the way it was set up is probably they were, at least in the old unions, they used to have like ladies auxiliary, but you could just have an auxiliary; it doesn't have to be ladies. But you know, of of like supporters of the union members. Yeah, that could be their families. Their their friends, whoever. And yeah, you're right. They were a lot of times focused on as much or more than the main union workers were. Lois Scott was, had a lot of cool lines and she was fucking great throughout the movie. She was a firebrand. I mean, the first we see of her, she's saying, you know, you've got impeach Nixon on TV. They don't do anything to those protesters, you know, but then we do the strike and then they send the gun thugs on us, you know? Yeah. Just trying to like, trying to agitate and say like, it's not fair. We're trying to fight for when when we speak up here, nobody's there to stop violence when it happens to us. Yeah. And like, she gets increasingly violent and it's really kind of cool. <laughs> yes. That's a theme we'll see with a few of the activists. We'll get into that kind of escalation of violence. Um, so the picketers show up. It looks like it's where the, like the main road where you turn off to go into the entrance to the mine, I think is where they were set up. Yeah. That's how I read it. They set up there and they start trying to like block people from coming in, mm-hmm. you know, block the scabs from coming in. And they, you know, they kind of know that like, 
you know, the cops are going to come out there and they're going to be on the coal operator side, the scab side. Mm-hmm. And they are because they, they call them out there pretty quickly and the cops come up and they're like, you know, oh, you can't block the road and stuff like that. And the way that these people were interacting <laughs> with the police. Um, I'm going to read you my note verbatim. Love this rowdy ass crowd harassing cops to their faces and pushing scabs vehicles completely yes. unafraid. Just like, fuck you. Just pushing vehicles away. Just like mm. starting shit. <laughs> Yeah, it was awesome. And they were just had a complete disrespect, basically, for the cops. <laughs> it was hilarious. This guy was, like, making fun of this cop. Like, I can't oh, believe yeah. this this family, you know, has a cop here. What a disgrace to his name. <laughs> that was so funny. Like, Hell yeah. He, like, told the documentary person, like, get a shot of this, this dude. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they uh, were like, this one guy was, like, talking about, oh, what if I took this cop's gun or whatever. I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I didn't hear like, that. This this guy would just get killed today. Oh, like, I know. I was so surprised. Like, them. Side note, I watched this with subtitles on, and subtitles do a very bad job interpreting Southern accents. I feel like I got more mm-hmm. of it than the subtitles did. I did, too. Yeah. We, all those inaudibles, or most of them anyway, I got. like For the most part, yeah. I was like, oh, I know what they're, they're saying. Yeah. I will tell you, I watched this on YouTube the first time I watched it, and the autogens were way worse than oh uh, yeah than the HBO ones. So. <laughs> but yeah, so they show you know there's there's this conflict at the at the intersection. I think even before they were going out there, there was this one guy, and they kind of he's one of the recurring uh, focuses. Is he's saying like we can't worry about the injunction, we can't worry about them saying like oh you can't go out there or whatever. Like mm-hmm. the he said the the law. You know, it's you can use the law to like get out of trouble once you're in it, but don't like tr- keep trying to follow the law because it's designed to, you know, prevent you from doing anything in the first place. I thought that was a really interesting way to put that. Like he's basically like, "What's the point of having lawyers if we can't like fuck shit up?" <laughs> yeah, and and later uh, the because the cops bu- do bust in and like arrest a lot of them. He says, "You know, it's just as well. Uh, you're a prisoner out there anyway." I love that line. You're a prisoner out there anyway. Might as well be in jail. Yeah, yeah. That, that dude to me stuck out as a real kind of revolutionary figure. Yeah. When they said the laws are set up against us, mm-hmm. someone mentioned, I don't remember who, but someone mentioned that they're not allowed to call them scabs and they're not allowed to have weapons. And I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> you should be able to call anyone whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, like, what is that? Like, <laughs> how it's not you... a racial slur. You're yeah. choosing to do it. <laughs> Like, and so I think they called them scalps at one point, which I'm like, to me, that's way more racialized, but okay. (laughs) Yeah. Or at least threatening. (laughs) Yeah. And then like the weapons thing, like that keeps coming up, like who's allowed to have guns or Mm -hmm. not. And like, cause a lot of them had like sticks and shit. A little knives. Like, is that like a police law or like a union law or how does that work? I believe that was just coming down from the judges. So what the company would do is go down to the court and say, you know, these guys are fucking with us and they would just be like okay well they uh, you know can't do this 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 what the fuck that's insane well you got into it right that the law wasn't made for them yeah it's not made for them and and that becomes more and more clear and that's just one of the examples another instance where the women are organizing right they say we got to do something about this and they go lay down in the road oh my gosh i'd love to lay my fat ass in the road make carry me (laughs) Yeah, and then they yeah they were hauling them off, and you know they end up going to court, 
as well. You know, they're in jail mm-hmm. first and then they go to court and they get this unfair treatment too. You know, yeah, they get no yeah. help and they know it. They, you know, they stand up and they're just like, this is rigged. This is bullshit. You guys haven't been doing anything for us pretty much. Yeah. They like weren't called forward to testify or anything. So someone was like, excuse me, can I fucking say something? Like, <laughs> yeah, the guy, someone says like, oh, this wasn't fair. That judge was a coal operator himself. And that was true. Oh my god! That guy was indeed Judge Hogg. He was a he was a coal operator. <laughs> like, of course of he's shit. not going to give them. It's ridiculous. And then, like, they show the women in the cell block, and they're all just like, "This is fucking stupid." And fucking Lois is just <laughs> like, "Go get me a gun next time." Like, fuck it, I'm in. <laughs> yes, yeah. People start, you know. I love it because it's the gradual evolution of like, because they go in, they're like, "Okay, sure, we're not gonna we're gonna be confrontational, but we're not gonna go in trying to actually fight violently." Yeah, and you see these conversations happen. Like, at one point, there is a conversation with strikers like, oh, yeah, we can't just go be nonviolent anymore. Like, it's just not going to fucking work. Yeah. People, I think this is what Marx and Engels and Lenin have talked about, is that the revolutionary potential of a union is that it can help teach workers about revolution through struggle, through class conflict. Like, that's how they learn how to do revolution or what's required, what won't work and what will work sort of thing. Yeah. All right. So they interview a guy named Norman Yarborough, a representative guy from Eastover Mining Company. So that's the subsidiary. The fucking balls on this guy. (laughs) Yeah. He said something that he like didn't think women should revert to this sort of behavior or something. Yeah. He was just like... I, did someone ask him about that? Like, what do you think about the women's movement in this strike? And he's like, I should hope, yeah, I should yeah. hope my wife wouldn't do something like this. And I was just like, fuck off, dude. She probably <laughs> should strike. You sound like a shit husband. <laughs> <laughs> and then they uh, ask him, is it true that you're providing housing for these miners that don't have running water? And yeah. he says, yes. And then he gives like the most mealy mouth answer ever of like, well, we're hoping in the future to provide better facilities. Blah, 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 blah. Like, yeah. <laughs> just, Tries just to a non-answer. Kind of, this is the best we can do right now. We mm-hmm. really want to do more, but I would have to show up in a slightly, ne- you know, slightly less nice suit. <laughs> I wouldn't have a job so. because my job is probably nothing. <laughs> yeah. Can't cut that corner. So we're going to have to cut their water. Mm. And that's where we are. <laughs> it's because, I mean, like we said before, they're treated as second-class citizens. Like, they don't think that these people are worthy of mm-hmm. running water, of modern amenities like that. Yeah, I just the conditions here, again, are just insane. Like, they talk about explosions with, like, uh, what's what was the name of the famous explosion? The Farmington, West Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the one uh, that trapped that, people inside? Uh, that one is, yeah, it, there's 78 people killed. Oh, my God. Uh, four survivors. And they, this was in 1968 when this happens. And, like, just before, they had been granted all these extensions. Mm-hmm. Because coal mines actually did have, like, safety regulation. And they were inspected 16 times. So yeah, someone came by and said, this isn't safe. Fix it 16 times in a row. <laughs> and then there was a, a reason it was caused. It was a buildup of coal mine dust and of methane. Okay, that seems bad. Eventually, boom. Yeah. Uh, And yeah, killed 78 people. Jesus. Interestingly, we'll get into this character a little bit later, this historical figure, Tony Boyle. Mm -hmm. He was the 
UMWA president at the time, and this was a UMWA mine, uh, and he responded by basically saying, hey, you know, like, lay off the coal operators. Like, they're not to blame for this. It's not their fault. Insane. <laughs> <laughs> Great president. Yeah, Ugh. for real. They've had th- those sorts of disasters, a lot of different disasters, really. Yeah. And they had the, the like, I guess, congressional testimony where they were talking to, like, this coal industry person who was like, oh, you know, we definitely are all about safety, safety, safety. And then the the Bureau of Mines guy, like, maybe ex-Bureau of Mines or something, mm-hmm, he yeah, was saying, yeah. like, yeah, and I mean, I know you're saying that, but I worked in the office and, like, we don't. Of course not. It was like an admission almost. He was like, we didn't do, you know, our job, basically. Like, there's just so many preventable disasters, both in the sense of, like, what if you had a safer workplace? And also in the sense of, like, what if we didn't, like, do this anymore? <laughs> yeah, that that too. It's interesting because so much of it is focused on, like, let's make sure we get people medical care and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of good. Like, you, I mean, you do need to get medical care, but it would also be nice not to have, like, these medical conditions in the first place, you know? Yeah, so they do a segment on black lung, Mm-hmm. And they interview people who are in various stages of it, but like their lungs are basically deteriorating. And they talk to a doctor who's just like, yeah, there's nothing you can do about it. Like there's no treatment for this. It's just once it starts, it starts. Yeah. All you can really do is just like put them on oxygen and just wait. It was really fucked up. So the way they their disability benefits work is they basically work mm-hmm. you until you are physically just wrecked just completely disabled unable to breathe and then that's when you can get disability yeah yeah so you're basically signing up for a death sentence Mm -hmm. yeah they were you know everyone knew it it was just that's how things were yeah black lung they talk about uh how it's like widespread in the community Mm -hmm. that's partially as a result of like actually mechanization in mining um, oh, really? because they have like the continuous mining machine that's like mm. uh, busting up all the coal and making coal dust and everything. Yeah. That's kind of why it got worse. Yeah. Um, more so than with more manual mining techniques. That, I like the, the testimony they gave. They, they the attorney? From that, yeah. It was like, it's not true that inhalation of coal dust in the lungs necessarily results in the impairment of pulmonary function. What the fuck does this what? guy think? causes it like it's just a weird coincidence that all these people in a coal mine happen to not be able to breathe weird strange yeah it's like uh the tobacco you know (laughs) research Mm -hmm. it felt very much like that and i thought it was interesting because they said that other countries had eliminated black lung they mentioned australia england germany i don't know what the deal was there like why couldn't we do whatever they're doing I know. I was wondering that because you're saying like the mechanization process, like did they find a better machine that doesn't do that? Like, or are they just like, yeah, we're going to stop doing coal. (laughs) Like, I would love to know what's going on there. Yeah. It's probably just expensive. (laughs) And so that's why they don't do it. Almost certainly. Yeah. So in the light of all that, Mm -hmm. you're, if you're like, I don't know, if you're in the pocket of coal, I guess (laughs) you're saying, well, they would do all these safety things. They would pay them more. They would give more benefits, but then they wouldn't like be able to, you know, pay them as much or, you know, whatever. You're saying there's not enough to go around. Yeah, there's thin profit margins. They Mm -hmm. don't make up. They're just a humble coal operator. They show us stats. And coal company profits are up by 170%. (laughs) 
In comparison, the miners' wages are up 4%. And if in case you're like, well, at least they're keeping up with inflation and stuff. No, cost of living was up 7%. (laughs) Ouch. So there's fucking enough to go around. (laughs) And the miners are basically losing money. Yeah. And the operators are making money hand over fist. Yeah. and, And one worker puts it perfectly. It's like, well, coal companies are... An energy company. Like, that's yeah. like the, the richest kind of company you can be. They're energy conglomerates. <laughs> uh, this this comp- Duke power is still around. It's it's Duke energy. Yeah. It's huge. It's, you know, it's, I mean, it's on the stock exchange. It's, it's net income in 2020 was $1 billion. Total assets of $162 billion. So they have like enough. They have enough. That, yeah. that is my least favorite myth, is that there's not enough. I'm like, no, there's fucking enough. Even yeah. if you want to be extremely eco-socialist about it, there's enough. Like, indigenous people have been doing it for a long fucking time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we could do it. And this is, sorry, kind of a sidebar. It's no, very frustrating to see the discourse turn, like a, a sharp, I guess, right turn, from, like, just straight-up denial of climate change to now, ah, oh, like, fuck it, we're all dead. <laughs> which like, I definitely feel that way sometimes. Yeah. But it, it's just, again, it just dumps that responsibility away. Just like, no, we're not going to deal with it. We're just going and to space. So here's another thing about that though. And it's, it is similar pessimistic, I guess, vain because pessimism is almost realism now, but like, mm-hmm. even if you're saying, oh yeah, but we're heading towards a mass extinction and okay. I mean, that's a given our state of, not it's wanting likely. to change things. It's a very big possibility. Uh, even when you're talking about that or the end of civil, you know, all these things, humanity will still probably like be around. There's going to be something. So like if we're not making changes now, drastic ones, or whatever change we can manage to pull off, if we're not doing that, we're just making it even worse. Like yeah. fewer and fewer survivors from the impending catastrophe, you know? <laughs> There's like damage reduction at this point, harm reduction. Yeah, yeah, you know? definitely. And that's a pessimistic view. We could, I mean, theoretically, we could fucking We could turn fix around, but like, but yeah, that would need, there's there's a laundry list of things we would need. Starting with revolution. <laughs> I would say yes. <laughs> okay. I want to talk about this fucking weird cop. <laughs> I love this dude. I oh love, my God. I found myself saying the words aloud last night. I love this cop. And that hasn't happened in a long time or ever. <laughs> I think it was because he was self-aware, sort of. I think he was. I think he was just like, whatever, man. Like, okay, so let's back up. Yeah. So the strikers end up traveling to New York to, like, raise publicity about the issue and be like, here's what's going on. This company's treating us like shit. We're here to try to, like, tell people about it. And mm-hmm. they're, like, in there and they're, like, coal mining hats and shit, handing out flyers, wearing those, like, placard thingies yeah i think they were outside of like wall street you know or the Mm -hmm. stock exchange yeah and this guy one of the strikers starts up a conversation with a cop and i'm like oh god but then (laughs) (laughs) it starts out pretty well the cop's like well you guys probably get paid all right like what do you make and the guy tells him he's like oh i make more than that and yeah i think that was key because I think as a culture, we, especially, I know you and I were raised to not talk about money and salary and stuff like that. Yeah. But that is so key in breaking down, like, kind of capitalism's grip on people. It's just to be mm-hmm. transparent. Be like, yeah, this is where my money comes from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And so they start talking about like, what benefits do you have? And like he, the cop realizes like, no, this is actually really shitty for them. Like they don't have dental, they have really shitty healthcare, like all this stuff. Well, he has it pretty sweet. I mean, he says yeah. like, yeah, we get free healthcare, free dental. He gets to retire at 36 at half pay. Mm-hmm. And he also, he adds like, for what? I just stand here. It's <laughs> yeah, because the guy asked him like, well, is your job dangerous? And he's like, no, nah, do you see what I'm doing right now? <laughs> I'm just standing on a street corner. Like, that's my job. And I like that he was kind of aware of that. He was like, this is bullshit. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he's like, your work is like actually dangerous and I get paid more to do nothing. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so yeah, if you want to see the world's one good cop from 1970s, check out this documentary. <laughs> We'll get into this a little bit later, I guess, when we see the sheriff. Oh, God. We'll talk about the... I don't know, because this cop, like, he was good as a person, it seemed like. You know, mm-hmm. he was fine. I mean, he's still, like, a class enemy. You know, he's still doing no, the yeah, wrong don't get thing me wrong. by being a cop. Yeah. But, it like, it doesn't require him to be a jackass personally to be on the wrong side, you know? Like, he was personable and might realize mm-hmm. at some point, like, this is fucked up, you know? Yeah, I mean, if you had put him in Harlan County and he was in charge of enforcing, like, fucking ridiculous strike laws, then, like, yeah, he'd be an asshole. And I'm Mm -hmm. sure he's an asshole to fucking black people because this is in the 70s and, like, you know, we're about to get into broken windows policy era in the 80s. So, like, he's probably going to stop and frisk every black person he sees for the next 10 years. Yeah. So it really depends where you are. If you're in a weirdly idyllic town where nothing bad happens, then like you'd probably be a nice cop. But like, <laughs> oh sure. <laughs> but if you're in a place that has like shit laws, then like yeah, you're gonna enforce some shit laws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of what we say sometimes when we're talking about capitalism doing these things, right? Mm-hmm. It's like there's no back room, there's no twirling mustaches. <laughs> there are some CIA plots, but in general, Definitely. it doesn't rely on anybody to doesn't rely on anybody being personally evil. They just do bad mm-hmm. things in the course of their job. Yeah, definitely, know? definitely. All right, let's get into the weird union politics. Oh yeah. So I thought this was interesting. It's it's kind of a break or a you know, they just start telling a different story for a little while. Yeah. About the United Mine Workers power struggles i guess yeah so the guy in charge before was boyle tony boyle he was um i mean the umw had had a history of you know very strong presidential figures Uh, Mm -hmm. john l lewis is one person that they uh showed before and uh he was like in the roosevelt days and stuff you know and he was autocratic and things but he got shit done those eyebrows were also insane (laughs) (laughs) yeah and he definitely like fucked up sometimes and Uh and did some bad things so i don't want to say he was a a superhero or anything but he initially had done some good stuff point is that when boyle gets into office you know he is autocratic in that way but he's Mm -hmm. like not liked at all like everyone thinks he's an asshole yeah so he really only held power through kind of corruption basically Yeah, that's kind of the sense I got from the union as a whole. I thought it was interesting. There's this really, I'm so super curious about like where it starts switching over. But like Mm -hmm. when you see the local union meetings, you're just like, yeah, everyone here is cool on the same page, like fucking yeah. And then like you hear from the national heads and stuff and you're like, I don't know, I don't trust these people. (laughs) Like, Well, but yeah, because they're suits. I mean, they're they're more powerful. They're more businessy. They're more bureaucratic. And the thing is, they're in talks with the company. So, mm-hmm. like, I'm not saying they're necessarily, like, palling around with them, they're BFFs, but, like, when you have more interactions with them, you're probably more likely, you're less likely to be 
agitating them. Exactly. What we said about uh, Farmington, right? After that, Boyle comes out and he's like, what? These guys are trying their mm-hmm. best, you know? Like, he should have been out there saying, what the fuck? Let's get these guys. I want heads on pikes, you know? That's the thing is, I think people are uncomfortable with that kind of pushing, even from people who are on your own side. I say mm-hmm. people generally. Leftists are extremely comfortable with that. We will call everyone out for no reason. <laughs> but <laughs> but I'd say, yeah. I think like mainstream people, especially Democrats, are like, you can't say anything bad about a fellow our Democrat. Guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's our guy. He's on our team. When it's yep. like, no, you need to be yelling at him to do better. Like, you can always do better. Yeah, and you see the same thing, I guess, here with local people saying, like, uh, Boyle, kind of an asshole, versus, like, the leadership saying, oh, Boyle, he's good, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in 1969. Mm-hmm. They have a campaign for the presidency of UMW, and they have, uh, as an opponent to Tony Boyle, a guy named Jock Yablonski. Yeah. Real quick, Boyle does say basically he wants to be president for life, which is just a terrifying thing to say in almost any context. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you're talking about like your Animal Crossing island, even then, it's a little weird. Yeah, maybe like first citizen or or (laughs) comrade or something. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, this little Yablonsky guy, tell me about him. Well, Yablonsky was kind of running a reformist campaign. And he was trying to introduce uh, greater democracy, more autonomy mm-hmm. for local unions. He was more concerned. I mean, you know, more directly tied to the workers. And so whereas yeah. a Boyle would go and try to conciliate, you know, be conciliatory with the owners and operators. More top down and Yablonski was more bottom up. Yeah. Yeah. And he wanted to be holding the owners and operators like to the contract and, and, and shake, you know, shaking them when things went, went wrong. And uh, they have this election in December of 1969, and it looks really, like, pretty rigged. Uh, Boyle wins by a margin of nearly two to one. Okay. Uh, 80,000 to 46,000. You know, Yablonski concedes because he's like, well, I mean, he stuffed the ballots. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Something happened. But then later on, he asked the Department of Labor to investigate the election for fraud. Mm -hmm. He filed some lawsuits. And in December of that year, uh, he gets murdered. Yeah, not just him, but his wife and daughter, too. Yeah, his wife, Margaret, 25-year-old daughter, Charlotte, uh, killed at their their home. There were three hitmen. Uh, who had who did the killings? Mm-hmm. They found out that Boyle had had ordered it after the two had gotten into a shouting match. He gave one of his like subordinates twenty thousand dollars that he had taken from the union funds. Wow! 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 To go hire gunmen to kill Yablonski, and so that's how it that's how oh, it went down. Jesus Christ! Yeah, they yeah. show him being like taken in, and he's like kind of jokey about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. They're like, "What do you know about?" It? And he's like, "Oh well." And then he stops and kind of laughs. He's like, "My lawyer says I'm not really supposed to tell you." And I'm just like, "Fuck you, man! Yeah. Like you're just unapologetically evil." Mm-hmm. Yeah, real asshole. Uh, eventually, they do convict him in 1974 and sentence him, and he ends up dying in prison. I mean, he doesn't get out. Yeah. Uh, then Miller gets elected. Yeah, they have another election. I think this is in 1972. After, uh, you know, the, the whole, I guess, murder trial and everything is going on. And Boyle is still running for <laughs> re-election versus a new reform candidate. And this time they have like a whole reform like movement. Uh, the mm-hmm. Miners for Democracy. 
Yeah, yeah. I was confused. I was like, wait, is this like a sub group? But I guess, I guess, yes. It's like a faction. Yeah. Like, like a faction in the in the United Mine Workers America Union. Mm-hmm. And uh, their new reform candidate is Arnold Miller. Yeah. And he's like, you know, more plain spoken. He mm-hmm. seems like he kind of comes up from rank and file. That was his favorite phrase. It was rank and file. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like every time he spoke, he used that phrase. Well, that's like Bernie Sanders with working working people or whatever. That's true. You know, it's, it's the common people, I guess. Regular <laughs> folks. People. Uh, and he, I mean, runs against Boyle and wins. Um, 56,000 members still voted for Boyle. Weird, but. Very weird. 70,000 voted for Miller. There you go. And so they, they kind of tell that story as this like fight for union democracy. Mm-hmm. This like, what was the national union? And then in relation, you know, how are the local unions kind of handling that? Yeah. So one thing they keep referencing in this film is Bloody Harlan, which is something I've heard about, but I don't know what it is. Can you tell me yeah. what it is? Sure. Yeah, let's do this sidebar. I, the first time I watched this too is it's ominous. They keep kind of mentioning it like it's this hidden lore but they, yeah, like yeah, all these right. old people are like, I don't want to go back to that. Like, I remember. And I'm just like, what the fuck happened? Yeah, it's like the winter in um, Game of Thrones or something. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You sweet summer child. You don't remember Bloody Harlan. <laughs> but they never, you know, they don't actually explain in the documentary. So yeah. Bloody Harlan County uh, or the Harlan County Wars mm-hmm. uh, is a conflict that happened uh, in the 1930s. Okay. It's part of the larger Coal Wars. Less cool version of Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> everything's up. just coal-fired. <laughs> <laughs> it's the steampunk version. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. But these the Coal Wars were labor battles set in coal mining towns. Okay. Um, spanning from like 1890 to the 1930s. Okay. In 1931, you know, Great Depression has struck. Yes. Lots of people out of work. The coal mine owners... They're like, shit, we still got to get people to buy uh, coal. So they're like, we're going to cut the price. But to not lose so much money, we're going to cut miners' wages too. 10%. Oh, God. Okay. You know, I mean, these guys, pro- they can probably handle it, right? You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Since we're in the middle of the Depression, they yeah, don't need no money. Yeah, no problem. Perfect time to cut people's wages. <laughs> and so the UMW comes in, the union comes in to try to organize. Okay. Get people to join the union. But when people join the union and the bosses find out, they fire them and evict them oh. from their company housing or oh. anybody they suspect is associating with the union. Okay. Right. So this is kind of how it gets started and how you have like so many people fired and evicted and then trying to like strike against the workers that the company's bringing in to keep production going. Mm-hmm. At the time, you have a sheriff named J.H. Blair. Who's okay. a complete piece of shit, but I guess I repeat myself. Uh, he's a sheriff. Uh, uh, and he was totally on the owner's side. He was quoted as saying, I did all in my power to aid the operators. There was no compromise when labor troubles swept the county and the Reds came to Harlan. This is obviously a theme. <laughs> but I think it's fascinating that we've talked a lot about how police are there to protect property. Yeah. And for me it's just this very clearly binary choice of like what is more valued in in this country and in mm-hmm. the world let's be real i don't think there's anyone that's really getting this completely right oh, yeah. but 
Yeah, it's really just looking at saying like, okay, this company has more rights than these people, like even though they're like one of them is being killed and brutalized by like their bodies and this resource extraction, like in various ways, Mm -hmm. this company's money is more important. Like it's just such a very clear choice to me. And I don't know how, especially in these scenarios, like of just physical labor like this, I don't know how anyone could could see that differently. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's an, that's something we saw right in the uh, Black Lives Matter protests. Mm-hmm. Anytime it got to, oh, if we, if we break a window at Target, I mean, let's bust skulls. Like, those are not equivalent. Those aren't you the know? same thing. Like, what are you but doing In our here? society, one is worth more than the other. Yeah. Because it's capitalism. You have to buy another mule. You have to <laughs> buy another store window. But you can always get another person. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, this sheriff, piece of shit. This sheriff, he's an asshole. He deputizes these gun thugs who are working, like, for the company. Okay. Whoever they wanted to go in and bust this stuff up, he would just hand them a, you know, a sheriff's deputy badge, (laughs) and then they would have the power of the law behind them when they went to go do the bidding of the coal mine owners. Okay, so sheriff basically was like, I'm not the sheriff anymore. The company is. (laughs) Basically. (laughs) And so uh, this basically gave them the right to... Uh, go, you know, evict people. Because I mean, you have to use force to evict people. Yeah. They're not just going to be like, oh, yeah, I guess you yeah, told bye. me to leave. I'll leave. <laughs> uh, you have to have a threat of force. And so that's what they were doing. Holy shit. So just police kicking people out of their homes. Mm-hmm. I'm sure also doing terrible things on the way. I mean, there's violence. So people don't like that. They fight back. Yeah. There's yeah. shots fired on both sides. Uh, May 1931. I mean, you've got deaths on both sides. Uh, the Kentucky National Guard is called in. Not to oh, like... God keep the peace not to protect the people getting no, kicked no. out of their houses no. no but to break the picket lines of course uh, they use tear gas mm-hmm. the sheriff blair also rescinded the right of assembly in the county just took that part out of the constitution okay just like, nope. uh, cool i just think it's that's great a great look for people who are like all about law and order. Well, that's like the law. That's a it's law. Constitution. You should keep that one. <laughs> Not that I think that we should revere the Constitution, but like... Yeah, no. If you're going to say you are, you know, <laughs> I can call you hypocritical when you don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, here's the thing. They don't care. <laughs> yeah. They like their particular laws whenever it suits them for the right people. By June 17th, 1931, the strike, in, the initial strike had failed. The miners were going back to work. The UMW withdrew all support. Shit. And there were no concessions. It was just beaten. But next, the communists came in. Oh, I love those guys. Yeah. Uh, and they were going to try to organize the coal mines, kind of same as the UMWA had tried to do. Okay. All right. And they sign up 4,000 workers. This is the openly communist. And when we say openly communist, we mean they were like set up by the Communist Party USA, like CPUSA. Nice. Uh, this was the National Miners Union. Okay. This is not from out of nowhere. Like the CPUSA at this time starts out the decade with 7,500 members and ends at 55,000. So like they were Ooh. fast growing during yeah. the 30s. And so they set in, they, they start doing this unionization drive and doing more local relief and setting up soup kitchens for the striking families, mm-hmm. really trying to trying to get this going. Yeah. And we've mentioned CPUSA before here. And it it makes sense. Like, you have this devastating economic situation. You have people who are just like, hey, clearly this system didn't work. What the fuck do we do now? Let's try communism. Yeah. If you provide for people, turns out they like it. 
It's yeah. super weird. I don't understand it. <laughs> and, and you're providing a need for the people. It's mm-hmm. kind of like with the Black Panther Party, right? Yeah. You're providing a need for the community uh, because, I mean, okay, because you're following like the Maoist tactic of the mass line. Like you're yeah. finding out what people need and delivering it. And remember, they're talking to them and saying like, I don't care about communism, about <laughs> socialism. I'm here because we need this, you know? And if they learn it along the way, great. Cool. As, I mean, you want to talk for the people by the people. Sounds like it's there communism to me, baby. Yeah. <laughs> And so, um, of course, these soup kitchens were welcomed in the community among the people, but not among <laughs> okay, the, yeah, uh, there we go. elites, right? Yeah. Uh, and they, so they attacked, they sent the gun thugs on the soup kitchens even. Once again, if you find yourself forcibly taking down a soup kitchen, maybe, maybe check yourself. Yeah. Look and is, are we the baddies? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> where did you, where did your life path go wrong? Uh, they started beating up miners in their homes. Oof. This is where the song, Which Side Are You On, mm. was actually written. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was written by Florence Reese. Okay. Uh, to the tune of an old like folk song called Jack Monroe. Okay. It, this was written after Sheriff's Blair, Sheriff Blair's men had ransacked her house uh, looking for her husband, Sam, who is one of these NMU uh, union leaders. Holy shit. And they had tore the house upside down, you know, just tore everything out and everything. And afterwards, she, you know, scrawls this out, uh, the words to it. Yeah. Fuck. But, yeah, it was a crazy period of violence. It kind of drags on. Like, those are the main two years of um, conflict. The NMU strike drive is also killed. Mm Mm-hmm. And that kind of uh, gives way after those first two years to kind of an on-off sort of violent period yeah throughout the rest of the 30s jesus that's what bloody harlan was not great okay i can see why people are nervous yeah yeah i don't know if this is the first instance of it or not but we hear about this from florence reese uh herself right yeah yeah who's talking to a union meeting there uh that was cool she at some point says uh, we've got nothing to lose but their chains and their union to gain. Oh, yeah, that was good. <laughs> I was like, hell yeah, someone's read her marks. Yeah, man, she was great. And, like, she sings her song, and, like, it was really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, let's get back to the picket line. Uh, yeah, back to the picket line. Uh, Things once are again, escalating. <laughs> yeah, we're once again dealing with Basil Collins, the asshole. Fucking Basil, the worst person. <laughs> <laughs> he's, yeah, he's a real dick. He looks like a Tommy Lee Jones knockoff. Like he would definitely play him in this <laughs> in this dramatization. That would be great. Yeah, because <laughs> he's wearing like all khakis too. Like that's very Tommy Lee. I feel like. I yeah, I think his pants uh, they looked a different shade, <laughs> but they were khakis each. But they were yeah, was, like they didn't match quite right. It was and, a choice. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this guy fucking sucks. He basically like is the foreman. And he's always trying to lead all the scabs into work past the picket line. And so they always are like yelling at him and shit. And he like mm-hmm. waves a gun at them, just loves waving his gun around. Yeah, he's already already walking up there with like his hand on his on his uh, pistol grip there. Like he's gonna... I hate that he doesn't have a holster, it's just like in his pocket. I'm like, that yeah. can't be safe. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. 
he's just very threatening the whole time and yeah, uh, asking everybody their qu- questions like, who are you? Who are you? Yeah. Can I see uh, your press cred- credentials? And like, I love the woman because she's just like, can I see your identification? Like, <laughs> she does yeah. not give a shit. Yeah. She, I mean, she gets them to ask, answer a few questions or like mm-hmm. before finally getting back around to the, and then just saying like, yeah, fuck you. I'm not. <laughs> yeah. They both but like very politely kind of mutually say, fuck you. Like, no, I'm not going to do it. Okay. Me either. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but he was terrible. The strikers are, you know, again, still trying to, the, the strike at this point is like in his 10th month. They're, they're still trying to block the road initially. Mm-hmm. You, you, like we said, with the escalation, like you don't, you still don't have guns on the striker side yet. Yeah. At that point. Uh, but then they get word that like this guy, Mickey Messer, um, who's the president of the local there, he got his house shot up by yeah. the company. They sent some machine gun guys uh, mm-hmm. to shoot his house up. And it, his wife talked about like, yeah, we were laying on the floor trying to hide basically. Yeah. Yeah. Her and like their kids were just mm-hmm. trying to hide from gunfire. Normal. Normal country. Totally chill. So, yeah, throughout this, you know, a lot of this film is showing these union meetings. Mm -hmm. We see some of our fave characters like Lois and this this other lady. They get into it. Oh, my gosh. Full on, like, cat fight. Like, I've heard you are stealing husbands. (laughs) It's insane. Yes. This one lady says she was still in husbands, and then I think Lois just counters with, you're an alcoholic or something. <laughs> uh, and they, they're they yelling, and then this other lady steps in. I love it. Oh, her, I love her. She, we end up finding out her name, Sudi Cruisenberry, mm, yeah, uh, yeah. who becomes later becomes president of their, uh, of their group. Yeah, and she's just like, I don't give a shit who you're fucking, whatever you're doing, like, we got a job to do. Yeah, it says, you know, what are we here to do? It's not that. It's not arguing with each other we need to win a contract we are fighting for you know our survival let's keep our eye on that yeah yeah definitely you know? and i understand though i mean i think when you do have such a hyper local organizing effort like it is very easy to fall into that especially like we were talking about earlier like these women are going around making sure everyone shows up at every strike and like it is mm-hmm. kind of personal like they're talking about like coming to pick people up to like go strike with with you yeah yeah so like i understand how it can fall into that mm-hmm. this is where we find out that lois is going to start bringing a gun uh-huh to future events yeah <laughs> just says let let's get as violent as they're getting yeah yeah definitely and yeah this is when the men are like yeah we got to do it too like i don't i don't know what else we're gonna do <laughs> oh yeah and then this is i guess where we see that the scabs or someone starts shooting it's really unclear what happens in the whole the night scene yeah, the night scene, and then they're like, oh, here's Collins. He pointed a gun, so, I mean, he may have done some... He pro- I don't know. <laughs> he seems like a guy who would do something. He some probably thing. would. Yeah, they, like, knock the camera over. They're just yelling. It's very chaotic. Yeah, so the next time we see them, they're talking about, I mean, we got to attack back. You know, the police mm-hmm. aren't going to help. We need to get out there. Uh, we need to bring guns. We need to be ready. Men and women, we're meeting at 5 a.m. at max. We'll tell you where we're going to be because it's not the same place. They're not going to get us again. Let's do it. So they go out, right? Yeah. And this is where they're blocking the road. Yes. And Sheriff Dipshit comes up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
this is so okay i love the conversations they have with the sheriff like the women are all up in his face just like fuck yes. you like we got shot up by machine guns i didn't see you coming to help us uh-huh. there which is just yeah. like perfectly crystallizes the issue of like they say you're biased yeah <laughs> yeah yeah like of course you're biased like you're not going to help us up there mm-hmm. and then uh but you're gonna come over here to help these scabs in and whatever and then the sheriff goes if you got seven dollars, I'll go arrest Basil <laughs> Collins right now. And they yes. all just start emptying their pockets. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was hilarious because he's oh all like God. acting like there's nothing I can do. But then this lady shows him an arrest warrant. <laughs> You're thinking, well, I guess he's got to go arrest a guy now. But he just, I mean, he that's like a bribe. Like, <laughs> I need an arrest fee or something. Yeah, there's a fee for it. First of all, I didn't know people could just make an arrest warrant. Like, I didn't know that was a thing. Did they just write it like a peep, like a citizen's arrest? Nah, I thought that, well, maybe I guess, but I thought it was like they found out that he had a record and they brought it to him oh. and it was like, hey, Sheriff, did you know that he had, which makes it kind of funny in a way that the Sheriff didn't know <laughs> that he had a record. I wouldn't put it past that. That guy but, looks like he's into shit, so yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, <laughs> they turn out their pockets and give him seven bucks and... Okay, so he came out there and he's like, now I mean business. You got to move these cars, right? Uh, but then when he goes over to uh, to Basil, he kind of puts his arms on the truck and he's like, well, Basil, looks like I might have to rest you. Sorry. You know, he's like chummy, oh, yeah, chummy buddy, with him, buddy. you know? Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. And he's like, oh, you can just drive your car downtown. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to like actually arrest you. <laughs> right. And then he goes back to the, to the strikers oh. and like, what the fuck? Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. So one thing I thought was interesting about this, and we mentioned it with a cop in New York, is that this guy, like, he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's obviously on the side of the company. <laughs> Clearly. But he's kind of, like, basically polite, I guess. Or he's basically doing his job. But in the course of doing his job, he has to side with the company, you know. And he's he's mm-hmm. just, like, obviously taking a side. Which side is he on? He's on, you know, he's with the company rather than the workers and you know he may not be personally like a dick he's still being an enemy of the working class yeah definitely like he he's got his orders and like at the end of the day they cannot block these people from coming in because the company has more rights than they do Mm -hmm. so after that i think the next thing is the the parade okay i love this so and i love it because it totally caught me up like it totally tripped me up yeah so they have this big demonstration like states from all around are coming Mm -hmm. to show their support the national union is here um they have music they have like all kinds of shit they have the president of the umwa everybody's out here right and you're all like oh fuck yeah solidarity here we go yep Mm -hmm. and then immediately afterwards they have an interview with this guy (laughs) who is super cool this guy i don't know this guy's great He was awesome. And he was just basically like, that was cool, but like, we should have done something with all those people. Like, if we had had that many people, we could have gone, you know, to fuck up the judge. We could have gone and expropriated all those machine guns they're using to shoot us with. Like, we could have just taken over Duke Power offices. Like, this guy's just like, that's not enough. Right. I mean, shit, if they had followed this guy's advice, we'd be talking about a worker Soviet in Eastern (laughs) Kentucky, you know? (laughs) Yeah, and to me, that was just so perfect. And it's mm-hmm. like the perfect crystallization of why 
nonviolence only will get you so far. Like you can go raise awareness. You can go to a protest. Like those things are all great. But like Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, if you don't have some fucking direct action, all you did was like make a lot of noise. Yeah, exactly. The reason that the law is so obsessed with and politicians and whoever are so obsessed with making sure that everyone follows the nonviolent mm-hmm. path is because it doesn't work on its own. Yeah. Like it won't do anything unless you make demands that are backed up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause at the end it's a power structure and like people in power aren't just going to roll over and be like, you know what? You're right. Sorry. My bad. Like, <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize I was being an asshole. Yeah. There's nothing you can do because like the nonviolent way it would be like, okay, we're going to get really mad about it. And then what the public opinion is going to like shame the company into paying more or like somehow manage to boycott, which is not how coal works. You can't boycott one coal coal company. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you don't know where the fuck your energy comes from. Like, so there's just, there's no outlet in that say in that case. Yeah. And they'll get into it later and say like, you know, okay, the protests and the public campaign did kind of work, you know, did kind mm-hmm. of help. And we, we don't want to say that like that, like you said, it's a good thing. You know, we yes, don't want to say is, it's bad. Yes, it is. I don't want to say it's completely useless or anything, but I, I don't think it can be your one move. No, it's not enough. It's, if, you're, if you're thinking revolutionarily, if you're thinking reformist, it may be enough. But you have to bet that we have, you know, a habitable earth for enough time for communism to crawl around oh, on its own, yeah. you know, which <laughs> probably won't happen. I mean, you, you, you. Uh, that's my argument, I guess, against reformism now is more from an eco point of view of like, we need to mm-hmm. do it now. Like, Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of my favorite tweets from this past couple of weeks was someone being like, I mean, we got all the addresses of the top polluters. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> we know where these fuckers live. Yep. Ugh. All right. Then we kind of get to the really tragic, I guess, end of the strike um, or the, the beginning of the end. Yeah, a scabbing son of a bitch named Bill Bruner uh, shot Lawrence Jones in the face with a shotgun and killed him. Yes. Left behind a wife and a daughter. And so they, I mean, the next scene we see is a union meeting. And the members are saying, you know, we want to escalate this. Like, this is fucked up. And the union itself is kind of saying, let's wait. You know, we got to calm down. We got to talk to you know, the leadership and negotiate, right? Mm-hmm. But the workers, damn, this guy, this old man, I loved him. He was saying, you know, we got these trees around and we got high-powered rifles and I was there in the 30s and we just get up there and <laughs> oh we know who God. it is. It's Yarborough and Collins. They're the leaders. Let's get up there and gun them down. Yeah, that guy was ready to fucking go. <laughs> he said, hold my drink, bro. Yeah, and I mean... Hell, he wasn't the only one. People were applauding him. Like, that was, you know, it was crazy to think about kind of in light of what the earlier, the interview we just talked about, right? What could have happened if they had followed another course, right? If they had brought all those people in to take over or if they had followed this guy and started doing some assassinations, some direct action. I mean, shit, you know, things could have turned out way differently. Yeah. And when you look at it that way, it's just like, man, this like, this young family just got destroyed. Like, what the fuck else are you going to do? Like, now's not the time for be, to tell me to calm down. But that's what they do. Yeah. The union says, the basically, the price has been paid. Mm-hmm. 
you know, uh, he was fighting for a contract. He died for the contract. And now we're square. If we can get a contract, then, you know, essentially it will have been worth it is kind of what they're saying. It's just insane. And they're going to move forward with this new contract. But first, I do want to bring up the fact that the murderer straight up got away with this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bill Bruner was charged. They had witnesses who said that he shot Jones unprovoked and the grand jury still did not indict him. Would love to know the makeup of that grand jury and their affiliations with the coal mine, but okay. Yeah, for real. Basically, you know, and they interviewed someone and he was like, if the roles had been reversed, you know, this, our, mm-hmm. you know, whoever we shot, you know, whoever did the shooting on our end would be in jail. Yeah, I, this is where I think we get into that interesting split between like top down and bottom up kind of organization as far as the union goes, because like you said, the union's really pushing them to accept this contract. And so they, they do. Mm-hmm. And then they, I think they have an interview with, I don't think he's national. I think he's like regional. Hold on. He just, his caption is just UMWA staff. His accent makes him sound like he's not regional. Let me put it that way. And, the guy and, with the brown hair? Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't think he is either. Yeah. And he is just like, yeah, this is great. Like, you know, he seems pretty pleased with it. And then you talk to the workers about it and they're just like, it's not fucking good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And someone was say, yeah, maybe it was the same guy. He was saying, you know, the same, uh, let's start a Soviet here guy, uh, who was <laughs> saying was, like, yeah. you gotta, in a union that is working for, you know, basically for the workers, right. And we have worker directed mm-hmm. union, you have worker directed strikes. And once you win a contract, you keep, you start the next fight. You start demanding for the next thing. Like he's basically just saying like, let's keep doing, <laughs> let's, let's, yeah keep up the class war you know? yeah and he literally says they don't give you nothing for nothing and it's like ain't that the fucking truth yeah like they will take whatever they can from you if they are yes. able to mm-hmm yes again not them being evil it's them following their class interests you know that makes you know, sense and for like them. if you find this maybe hard to relate to if like i mean yeah i'm not a fucking coal miner and i've never even had a very physically demanding job before But, I mean, you can relate this to other industries, too, like service Mm -hmm. industry. Like, there is such a huge pressure applied to employees to not ask for time off and to always be available and all these things. Like, you are essentially guilted into. And if there is not, like, a law or something to stop them from abusing their workers, they'll abuse their workers. Like, we see that. With health care coverage, with all any sort of benefit, pension or retirement, whatever. Yeah. And, you know, if you're, you know, an office worker, like there's also the whole culture of overworking yourself. Like that's another way for them to squeeze more out of you. (laughs) Like I have had jobs where like you're expected to work all the fucking time, just like whenever you're home too. And like, if you don't, like you're not going to do as well there and you're not going to get the cool projects. And it's like, this definitely isn't legal, but like you're finding a way to get around it. Power does not concede willingly, basically. Yeah, like, they're going to take what they can get from you. Like, nobody's out there. I mean, you can have a personally nice boss, like we said, but at the end of the day, they want money. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And the bottom line is more important than their relationship with you, basically. And they'll try to justify it by being like, no, like, I really believe in this business. And like, no, we're a family. No, you know, whatever. I just want to stall work hard. Sure. But at the end of the day, that's not their main goal. Yeah. Maybe it's not conscious is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, no yeah. mustache twirling. That's probably going to be a shirt to some sort of mustache twirling capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. 
it's may, yeah maybe it's not a conscious effort it's like ha i'm gonna abuse my workers today it's a i need to make money what can i possibly do to make money yeah mm-hmm. and again this is you know talking about maybe our more modern american professional sort of uh experience but there's it's it's just so it varies so widely but i guess it still kind of follows the same basic template of class antagonisms right of um the workers versus the bosses yeah yeah i mean if you want to zoom out and take more of a global perspective like that's why we have sweatshops like we can all Mm -hmm. agree those are horrible inhumane conditions just like one of the worst places you can be on the planet Mm -hmm. but why do we have them so we can have things for cheap and so people can not have to pay their workers more and so they can make more money like that's it that's the reason yeah Yeah. and and it's and it's you know it's not those countries like faults even most of the time like they're the, the the companies that are in those countries are doing that so that they can serve you know multinational companies based in like the imperial core based in america yes. and western europe and stuff yeah so, yeah like, you can't just be like oh india sucks because of that like, it's like no it's like american companies who are buying from them so like fuck off yeah and it's not just america too like you know because we're kind of a right-wing asshole country but like even the <laughs> nice social democratic countries like they still benefit from it. It's yeah. It's their their wealth and 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 well being and stuff is built on the ex, that exploitation. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, we got really mad about exploitation for a minute. That happens here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, to continue, kind of what what happens here, the the denouement of the story mm-hmm. is they get the contract, and then three months later. The national contract expires, so the UMW has to ratify a new one. And they don't agree on a new, you know, they don't reach an agreement in time. They have another strike in 74. uh, And then three weeks later, they come to a tentative agreement that crucially leaves out the right of locals to strike. I mean, this is just fucking bullshit. Like... If you take away their right to strike, what else can they do? Just say, please? Like, <laughs> there, there is no other course. The union says, like, we make the decision to strike at the national level. So if you have a problem, mm. right, then you file your grievance through the union, then the union will be like, yeah, we'll strike and support you, or no, we won't. And if they tell you no, that's what one guy was saying. If they tell you no, just like you said, what is the recourse? You know, how can... What, what are we left with? You know, just because the union told us no, we're stuck now. And again, it gets to that national versus local level where like mm-hmm. they don't nationally, they don't know what's going on. Like they can, I guess you can call them up and be like, let me explain the situation here. But like they don't fucking live there. They don't know the conditions. Yeah. And what's worse is that, you know, who they do know is like the company. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it very much shifts it to more of a business union framework in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, more like the guys said, top down mm-hmm. and less responsive, more bureaucratic. Yes, definitely. Completely swiping the legs under from the whole local grassroots movement that we've been seeing throughout this documentary and seeing really um, the success of that and, and mm-hmm. how it brings that community together. So, yeah, I thought yeah. that was insane. So... They have the ratification vote. You know, people complain about it and they say, this is bullshit. But then, I mean, they go back to work. Yeah. Because, I mean, what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing. And, like, uh, I don't know. It's very frustrating 
because again, the capitalist culture tries to convince us that like, this is somehow a choice. This is somehow their fault. This is like, Oh, just get another job. And it's like, what the fuck? Like there's no other jobs here. (laughs) And also like, you shouldn't Mm -hmm. have to do that. Like that's just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, they do what they have to do, I guess. And they go back to work. The documentary goes into some music and then kind of recaps with some, just some scenes and like, what, where are they, you know, what happens next sort of thing. Mm -hmm. The miners do some more protesting a year later in 1975. And then the next year they're protesting about like court injunctions and stuff. But the ending, I think, I guess is kind of open ending. I think so. Yeah. Uh, they are like struggling still, you know, they are still, the union still doing stuff, but it does kind of look more and more protest oriented Mm -hmm. rather than strike oriented. Maybe something they mentioned earlier that I I thought was really heartbreaking was someone was like, I don't think we would have gotten a contract unless that kid had died. Like, yeah. And like, that should not be what it fucking takes, but it seems like it is. Yeah, uh, I think it was sufficient to kind of push it over the top. The one guy does mention, you know, and I think this is probably true that, you know, they did have publish- publicity. They had uh, the fight against the, the com- company was also doing a rate increase. So mm-hmm. there was a fight against that. There were people were were it was taking a hit on the stock market. Like he said, uh, yeah, our strike, you know, did not uh, shut down enough coal to hurt their stockpiles. Mm hmm. But yeah, maybe, you know, the death probably pushed it over and was enough to get it to end then and end successfully. Again, it might not have succeeded without it. It was, but it was like part of a multi-front war, I guess, you know. Definitely. And I, I think what's frustrating about that is that had the tables been turned and like, let's say, you know, a cop got killed, it would have gone completely in the other direction. Yeah. And so you're just left with very little recourse. Like, <laughs> just, mm-hmm. it feels very hopeless because it's it is designed to be that way i suppose i mean even if you want to take the tactic of okay let's expropriate the machine guns on the downside you would probably be faced with the national guard next i mean yep that's what i was gonna say is your soviet republic might be (laughs) short-lived yeah i mean i think that's something we come up against a lot is just the idea of like whenever you're ready to play ball you better have everyone on fucking board Mm -hmm. so i don't know that's where I'm like, well, maybe this podcast isn't useless. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I guess I don't think it is. Like, to me, that was one of the questions that I was thinking about when watching this was, okay, from what I want to take from this sort of is what should communists be doing in in our lives and like to, to you know, what's our goal, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, because uh, we like to be, you know, utopian and, and just kind of like, <laughs> do some daydreaming and that's fun. But like what work I guess do we need to do, mm-hmm. you know, to actually bring about the revolution one day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, freeing humanity from, from capitalism. Yeah. And you know, yeah, sure. Like you, you know, some people, they just post online and Hey, I mean, if that's what you can do, that's what you can do. Some people, you know, they just like podcast and <laughs> Hey, I mean, if that's all you can do, that's all you can do. Right. But like, I think getting into the unionization drives with whatever limitations are included. Uh, I think that's a big portion organizing in terms of mutual aid, in terms of political parties and things, and in terms of actual, maybe not as businessy or bureaucratic type unions, but more like revolutionary militant unions, I think is Mm going to be crucial 
to actually making revolution happen. Well, I think what I was saying is that before you can get into that, you can't just walk mm-hmm. up to someone, especially in the States, and say, hey, I'm starting a fucking paramilitary unit. You want to join up? Like, <laughs> we have we yeah. have a negative baseline to start from re-how people feel about communism in this country. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to pretend, I'm going to give myself a pat in the back here. <laughs> say, okay, like, so. yeah, like, people need to be onboarded to this to understand, like, hey, here's why maybe, like, the things you've been told about why this system works, maybe it doesn't work, and maybe, like, mm-hmm. there's a reason you've been told that this whole time, and, like, people need to know about this shit. We're doing the demystification work. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, at least I, I like to think so. Could be useful. and <laughs> Could be useful. Well, it could be useful mainly in the hands of, I think, our listeners more so than us. Like, we can reach an I audience. Think so. But our listeners can reach, like, an audience that is ready to listen to them mm-hmm. that might not be ready to listen to us. Yeah, because, again, like, the name of the fucking show, that's going to turn some people off. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And that's so, yeah, you know, that's okay. You got to meet people where they are. But I think that's where you guys can can really shine. Hell know? yeah. Get out there, listeners. Don't don't get beat up. True. <laughs> but do your best. Review for this movie? Review oh, like stars. Like a star rating. Give me that stars. All right. I'm going to rate it 5 stars. Oh my gosh. Okay. I love it. It's it's so like rough looking in terms mm-hmm. of it's it's not, you know, they're never using like a steady cam or anything really, but it's not like kitschy in you know in any sort of way. Yeah. And there's no like narration, which I think is a cool feature of a documentary. That's very interesting. That's my least favorite part about it. <laughs> <laughs> because because I did not have the context of all the history in the way mm. that I think you did. So you're just like, okay. here's me back in my union shit. Like I know what's going on, and I'm right. like, who the fuck are any of these people? Uh huh. <laughs> so, okay, yeah. So less accessible unless you know what's going on. I would do a quick Wikipedia read of Bloody Harlan, um, or like just have Google on the ready for whenever they're like, I I can't even remember if they properly introduced UMWA or not, or if they just started using the acronym. Just like I had a little bit of trouble keeping up with it sometimes. Like, who the fuck is this? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's like, for example, like one part where I got lost, I think I mentioned this, when they're talking about Henry Miller starting his own subgroup. I didn't know that was a subgroup. I thought that was a new group. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. The Miners for Democracy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. I was like, who the fuck are these people? Are we doing a different election now? Like, what's going on? Like, they don't... I could have used... I like it, too, when there's not a big narrator. I don't want, like, a heavy hand on it. But, like, I could have just used every now and then being like, and here's what's going on right now. You know? That's That's fair. That's fair. Tastes differ, as Lennon said. As Lennon would say, tastes differ. That's another shirt. Let me write that down. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm going to give it a 3.5. That's really my main criticism. Is that I Hard to follow. It's a little bit hard to follow. But I I liked the style of it. I loved all the people in it. Like, fucking, I'm a lowest stand for life. Love her. (laughs) Yeah, it was good. The music was great. I think they did a really good job contextualizing like the conditions. My biggest gaps were yeah, like that base historical knowledge gap. And then I think I'm also like, because this was made in the seventies, now I'm super curious, like what the fuck is it like now? Like I only have a cursory knowledge mm-hmm. from listening to the trailbillies, but like, it's just, I'm super curious, like how, how that panned out. Yeah. 
I will say to your point about like seeing the conditions there, I thought the film did a good job of showing that empathetically without showing that like, like uh, feeling sorry for them or pitying. Yeah, it wasn't like fetishizing how poor these people right. are or anything or like look yes. at these dumb hillbilly kind of things. It was very much just like, look at these people. Like this is fucked up. And then to the conversation about what things are like, mm-hmm. you know, more recently. You will recall, maybe, back in 2019, uh, they had coal miner protests there in Harlan County again. That's right. That was from Black Jewel Coal. Mm, Yeah, Uh, yeah. And what they were doing was, I mean, they basically had gone bankrupt and were not paying people. Yeah, I remember that. Because they had been, like, paying them in cash under the table a lot of times and, like, doing all this fucked up stuff. And so they were blocking trains full of coal coming out of Harlan County. Mm-hmm. And uh, they got a lot of publicity about that. And eventually they were able to, you know, they, they ended the protest. They had found employment elsewhere by that point. Mm-hmm. Cause the company's gone. So it's not so much a strike, you know, more as a labor protest in general, I guess. Yeah. But they eventually ended up with $5.47 million awarded to the fired miners. Holy shit, yeah. Um, from the bankruptcy settlement. So, you know, they were successful, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Putting forward their demands. That was in October of 2019. Wow. As far as the UMWA goes, it has done some actions recently. It's way smaller now than it used to be. Mm-hmm. It once had around 500,000 members in the 30s. By the end of 2018... Uh, They had 60,000 members and only a few thousand active coal miners. Most of them were retirees. Oh, wow. They had a few, like, in other industries, but not very many. Yeah. So it's just kind of like dying out and providing for its older retired members. Oh, that sucks. But they're still, you know, I mean, they still exist. It was July 9th. They were on the picket line at the Warrior Met coal mine Mm -hmm. in Alabama wearing tank tops that read scab bullies. (laughs) <laughs> okay and uh the police were out there trying to get them to move their trucks uh but nobody would say like oh this is my truck oh my <laughs> the god police officers asked him who's in charge and someone was like everyone oh that's great so what are we doing next week uh so next week we're gonna take a look at the mexican revolution of 1910 hell yeah i only have a passing knowledge of this from people i see on money and my trips to Mexican museums, which I only understood about half the captions in. Yeah. So <laughs> this will be great. All right. Yeah. Hopefully this will be a good overview. Uh, similar to our episode on the Russian Revolution, which, you know, was a very complex subject that we whew, kind of condensed. <laughs> That's what's going to happen here because the Mexican Revolution takes a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's from 1910 till I kind of put it at like 1920-ish. That's a long time. Yeah. Historians kind of differ on that, but whatever. (laughs) And we're going to consolidate that. And and throughout it, we're going to be focusing more on, you know, through our socialist, communist, anarchist leading lens, Mm -hmm. leftist lens, Mm -hmm. uh, we will be focusing on like the social revolution part of that. Cool. We're going to be focusing more on the popular demands. Uh, we're going to focus on some of the leaders of that, like Emiliano Zapata. Hell yeah. 
and ultimately kind of as the results of the revolution in terms of what it did do for the people. In the meantime, you can find us online. We're on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can send us an email, teachmecommunism at gmail.com. And you can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, that really helps people find the show. So do that. Yeah. Yeah. You can send us questions or suggestions or reviews or whatever. Just send us stuff and post about us. All that good stuff. Yes. We appreciate it. Glowing reviews or probing questions, whatever it is. Yeah. Constructive criticism. I'm into it. Yeah. I went to art school. So like, <laughs> I got a thick skin on that. I'm good. <laughs> We also are on YouTube if that's how you like to listen to podcasts or if you know that's how someone else in your life likes to listen to podcasts and you're trying to do your little proselytizing, send them our way. And finally, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash teachmecommunism. For $5 a month, you get access to our notes for each episode, including the backlog. Um, a very handy resource for up-and-coming leftists or if you're just mm-hmm. like studying history or something and you got to test on some Russian stuff or whatever. Yeah, or if you want, you know, just to read a few diatribes or rants. Sometimes I include those, but I don't get to them in an episode, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so this week we'll get both of our notes. Mine are mostly just like, LOL, what? Like, (laughs) reaction-based notes. (laughs) Oh, and at the end of the year, all of the money from our Patreon goes to a local mutual aid fund. So, yeah, do that. Yes. Support the people. Hell yeah. All right. Thanks for watching this movie with me. Mm-hmm. And thank you listeners for tuning in. You can join us next week on another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs>